Well, uh, please, uh, if you've shut it, uh, have uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2 back open. We're looking at uh, verses 13 to 23 tonight. And uh, on the back of uh, the songs during communion sheet that hopefully you got uh, inside your service sheet is an outline of uh, where we're heading as we look at that passage, Colossians 2 from verse 13 onwards. Uh, I'm a runner. I run. You need to know that about me. I run. At least once a year, I run. And uh, when I do this yearly run around the streets of Fullwood, I'm keen to look legitimate, like I belong out there on the road, like one who's going strong. And so when I see someone from the church family driving past while I'm on my yearly run, I, I sort of put on a burst of speed. The last time uh, I experienced it, I think it was Jenny Marsden who I saw as I was running up Brookhouse Hill and uh, put on this burst of speed, sprinting up the hill. This is so easy for me, I'm going strong. Or if someone walks past, I stop groaning and grimacing and puffing and panting and start some sort of ridiculous smile and wave routine, as if to say, how easy is this? I'm a runner. You need to know that about me. I run once a year. But soon after this uh, yearly ritual of sporting splendour takes place, something else happens. Liz and I will be out somewhere together and we'll bump into someone who has seen me on my once-a-year run and is suitably impressed. And then Liz will shatter the myth in public of my running prowess. She will out me as a running fraudster. And the Christian life in many places in the Scriptures is described as a run, but here in Colossians the pace is slightly calmer. It is described as a walk. If you remember it from Colossians 2 verse 6, really the key verse in the whole of this letter, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to literally walk in him. So let me ask you, uh, Christian, tonight, having outed myself as a running fraudster in your presence, are you ever afraid of being seen as a phony walker? Uh, When you're with people from this church family, be it uh, as we gather on a Sunday or in your small group or perhaps just over a meal or down at the park, wherever it may be, and you're hearing of their Christian walk and all the things that that involves and you start to feel short of the mark. Do you ever feel your Christian walk is going to be exposed along the way by others? Well, if so, when that fear comes upon you, when you're, uh, when you're feeling inadequate and short of the mark, what is your Christian turn of speed that you suddenly put on? when you uh, try to cover up the inadequacies of your Christian walk, what's your cover? What are you hiding behind? What, what Christian practice or experience that you've had as a Christian or Christian principles do you hide behind that hides the real you? Hides that real you from others and perhaps even from yourself? Well, we come to a passage tonight in Colossians 2 for those who feel intimidated as they walk as Christians. For those who, as they look around and see others walking, feel nervous, unsure, desperate to prove themselves. And it's also a passage for those who, as they look around at other Christians, feel secure. Secure in their Christian practices or their experiences or their morality. This is a passage for those who look at such things and think, I am walking a good walk. To those of us, so whether we be those who are intimidated or those who are confident in such things, Paul will say two things to us tonight. As you walk, here's the first of them, he will say this, see the identity you must not lose sight of as you walk. See the identity you can't lose sight of. 
It's actually the identity that Paul has been showing us again and again in this letter. He is desperate for us not to miss it. In fact, it's what he prayed for us and for the Colossians before us back in chapter 1 verse 9. You remember it? That we be filled with the knowledge of God, filled with the purposes of God, purposes precisely defined for us back in chapter 1 verse 27. Here it is, Christ in you. That's the identity we must not lose sight of as we walk. Christ in you. Now let's uh, look at it together. What we're going to do is we're going to pull it apart and then put it back together because that's what faith does. Christ in you. And firstly there's Christ. And we've seen so much of him in this letter. But Paul is keen for us to see even more. He says if you're not going to be intimidated as you walk, you must see clearly who he is. Because he is wonderful. It's very possible, isn't it, to overestimate how wonderful you are or I am, but it's impossible to overstate his wonder. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 9? He is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. In him nothing is lacking. He is, as Napoleon said, extraordinary. The whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. All there is to God is found in him and nowhere else. And all the fullness of God, we were told in that verse, uh, verse 9, dwells bodily in him. Your Christ is substantial. He is present with us in body. Don't lose sight of him, says Paul. He is full. You need to know that as you walk. He is fully God and verse 10 of chapter 2, he is fully king, all creation's king. For as we saw back in chapter 1, by him and in him and through him all things were made and hold together. You'll need to keep sight of that as you walk, says Paul. Well, there's Christ. How about you? Who were you? Well, have a look at chapter 2, verse 13. The first three words sum up who you were fairly well. You were dead. Now, that's your claim to fame. That's your CV, past experience. You were dead. Dead, we're told, in your sins. And Paul's described that for us again a number of times in this letter. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 21, you'll see it described in a different way. He said, you were alienated from God and enemies because of your sin. That's what Paul means when he says dead. As, as guilty sinners, we were without life because we'd cut ourselves off from the very source of life. Dead. And then again in verse 13 of chapter 2, dead in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. That's what we saw last week, this nature that tries we might like Eustace in the dawn treader, we can't get rid of it. A nature that, that Paul says in Ephesians left us without God and without hope in this world. You were dead. Here's the identity you must not lose sight of. Christ in you. Now see what happens when you receive Christ by faith. What, what happens with Christ being so very, very full and you so very dead? Well, by faith in him, chapter 2, verse 10 says, you have been given fullness. And as the chapter goes on from verse 11, he is going to demonstrate how that has happened. What happened when you received Christ Jesus? Well, it wasn't some sort of uh, mere intellectual assent, I agree with Jesus, I agree with what he did. Or some gap in your life filled. 
No, you died in Christ. And in the verses that follow, Paul piles metaphor after metaphor on top of one another to make the point. He says, if you have received Christ by faith, you are in Christ, so very in. So much so that what happens to him happens to you. And so verse 11, his death was the death of your sinful nature. You were there when he died. As he died, God was ripping off your sinful nature. That's what we saw last week. And then verse 12, as he was laid in that grave that Good Friday, as his body was taken down from the cross and they put him in the tomb, so too by faith was your body of sin, dead and buried. And the goal of your death in him on that cross, in that grave, well, it's Easter Sunday, isn't it? What happens to him happens to you. Verse 12, you were raised with him through faith. That's my identity in Christ. I was dead in my sins. I died with him. Now I am raised. You see it there in verse 13, a forgiven man. Forgiven. How precious is that news? As we come to uh, communion in, in, in a little while together, that is what we are celebrating in together, raised forgiven. And not just forgiven some things, not just forgiven those in the past or maybe just the minor details, the minor sins of my life. Do you see it there, verse 13? All of my sins, all of them. And because I am forgiven, totally forgiven, I can lay claim to the hope of glory that we've seen in this letter, the hope of relationship with my Creator. I can be with Him with nothing to fear. Sure of this that because I am forgiven, chapter 1 verse 22 is true, that there is coming a day when I will be presented before the God of all this world, the judge of all this world as holy, without blemish and free from accusation. No one can accuse me before him. I'm full. As I walk in him, what could possibly make me feel inadequate? Well, nothing, surely. But Paul has seen it all before. Again and again, those who receive Christ, he has seen them starting their walk with him. Only to be intimidated, only to be cut in on as they walk. Just a decade earlier perhaps, the Galatians had had this very thing happen to them. And so having shown us this identity that we must not lose sight of, he turns to show us the serious danger, the intimidation we must not let happen. And uh, in verses 16 uh, onwards, he's going to show us three different things that can intimidate us as we walk. Now, here's the first of them, verse 16. Don't let anyone, don't let religion judge you, he says in verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Paul says to us, he says, uh, people are going to judge you over these things. People will judge you over religion. They will assess your Christian life by these sort of things because we humans love religion. Because religion's about us. Our effort, our rituals, our practices. And so the natural drift from authentic faith in Christ is always going to be towards religion, filled with its rituals and regalia and reredos. You are walking in Christ, says Paul. You're full. Don't let yourself be disturbed by such things. Don't heed 
such judgments. Don't walk that way. Walk in him. Now before we look at the things that Paul specifically mentions here with regard to religion, consider the experience of being judged by others. I mean, how important is the view of others to us? Their, their approval, their nod, their tick. It's easy to have the judgement of others shape our life, our priorities, our behaviour, our attitudes. And given that religion is so cherished by humans, it's going to be an influential judge, isn't it? And this was especially so for these Gentile Colossians who had received Christ. In receiving Christ, they had received Israel's Messiah. God's special people. Israel who had a religion with very specific practices. I mean, surely there would have been immense pressure on them not only to honour the Messiah but to honour the religion of the Messiah's people. And so Paul cites here two examples, uh, religious abstention from certain foods and then observance of certain days. Paul says, don't have your walk in Christ judged over these things. And he says this because there, there were two particular dangers to Israel's religion. Firstly, there is the, uh, the appeal of all religion, as we've said, this delusion that we can actually do something to secure or sustain our relationship with God. That's what keeps religion going. And then there was this. These practices, these religious practices of Israel had good origins. They were God-given. The distinct food practices uh, that uh, Paul refers to here set them apart as God's holy people. And the special days, days like the Sabbath, were deliberately given to them by God to remember God's promised rest, relationship with him. They had good origins. But Paul says, even with their God-given origins, you must not let anyone judge you over such things. And here's why, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Such practices were only ever just a shadowy arrow pointing to the real thing, Christ Jesus You see, when God gave instructions over food to set his people apart, he didn't do it because abstaining from certain foods made them holy. He did it to show just how serious he was about holiness. The shadow was the food. The reality, the means, the only means of holiness was in Christ. If you go back to the very second verse of this letter, you will will see what has made the Colossians holy. It is Christ Jesus And so Paul says, don't follow the shadows. And when it comes to religious days, especially the day of the Sabbath, and you were told to rest, he didn't do that. God didn't do that because he was concerned you might go to the co-op on Sunday. He did it so that you would know his plan for you, to rest in him, in right relationship with him, in his eternal Sabbath. And Christ alone is the substance of that rest. Only in him is it realised. And so whether you observe certain days matters not to Paul. What matters is whether you rest in Christ. Do you abstain from certain foods, says Paul? Who cares? Christ has come. Ask this question instead. Are you in him? And so he says, don't live in the shadows. Even the good ones live in him. 
Now let me say on this first area of intimidation, how easy is it for us to be more fascinated by shadows than the sun? Now take for example the upcoming festival of Lent. It's just a a few weeks away, uh, the festival we have with the 40 days leading up to Easter. A festival put into the Christian calendar to help us take Easter seriously. A time when we are to come to Christ anew in repentance and faith to fix our eyes on our Easter identity in him. That's the reality of Lent. But how easy it is to be fixated by the shadows. We get fixated by observing the days of Lent. I mean, we'll do it here. Here on Ash Wednesday in this building we will hold a special service to observe the first day of Lent and we will do it every Wednesday throughout Lent with a communion service. And how good is that? We will deliberately as a church family get together to remember who we are in Christ. But it is no longer great if for us the observance of that festival is what really matters. What if we missed a Wednesday? What if we didn't meet on a Wednesday? What if we didn't meet at all in that way throughout Lent? Is that a problem? Why? I mean, could we get to the point where we are more concerned as a church family to observe the ritual of Lent than we are concerned that we are coming to Christ as a church family in repentance and faith? That's when we know we are fascinated by shadows rather than the sun. Paul says, don't be judged by religion. Who cares if we have a weekly ritual? Who cares if the colour on the front of the pulpit is wrong? Or what collect we're up to, these things are mere shadows. What matters is repentance and faith in Christ. And if what I've said there is challenging or perhaps even offensive to you, let me, let me challenge you to go to the Book of Common Prayer and see the collect, the prayer for the first day of Lent, Ash Wednesday. There you will find no ritual, but you will find the call to come to Christ in repentance and faith and walk in him. And the same is true of the other Lenten ritual that we love and this is a more common practice one amongst uh, the wider Christian community. Uh, We we make some plan to abstain from something. We make a a plan to say, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. Or perhaps the the younger ones amongst us will say, I'm going to give up Facebook for Lent. And we make that bold announcement, this is my Lenten effort, this is what I'm doing for Lent. Even though Cramner was very careful in the Book of Common Prayer to put as the first reading on the first day of Lent, Matthew 6, where Jesus warns us to make no show of abstinence. Lent becomes a shadowy practice. As Calvin put it, it becomes merely superstitious observance whereby Christians imagine they perform excellent service to God. Shadowy practices. What matters is substance in Christ. And let me say the key in all of this is realising that having the substance as a church is not simply a matter of repudiating shadows to say, let's rid ourselves of all religion. What drives shadows away is not merely a church empty of such things but one filled with what we have seen of the Colossians, joyful, thankful faith in Christ, love for one another, all fuelled by the hope of glory. That would make for a good Lent. Here's the second area that can intimidate us. Don't let experience disqualify you, verse 18 and 19. And Paul said to them, I've heard of your firm faith. I've heard how you are living out that faith. Don't let anyone make you feel that you're short of the mark. Verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in 
false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. You ever felt that way? As you see the uh, Christian experience, the spiritual life of another Christian or, or perhaps another church and you seem, it seems so much fuller than yours, so much bigger. Your Christian life in comparison is anemic. No experiences to boast in, no visions, no, none of that. Theirs is sort of Christianity to the max and yours is, well, in the slow lane. Just a couple of weeks ago when we were last looking at Colossians, I spoke of my friend Simon who had felt that very intimidation as Christians came into our school speaking of this fuller Christian experience and in doing so doing immense damage. He was a man who was seemingly walking strong in Christ and along comes someone who says, you can be so much fuller. And Simon was desperate to make the grade, which he didn't. And so he gave up on the experience and on Christ. See to it, Paul says, that no one disqualifies you over experience. And as Paul speaks of this in verses 18 and 19, realise that he has his tongue, I think, firmly in cheek as he describes this person. He aims to show you how absurd it would be to be intimidated by such a person. For starters, they're so humble. They delight in humility. And it's a superior kind of humility. Uh, I'm just normal, he said. I'm just a guy, but God is using me powerfully and he wants me to help you. You can have so much more of God than you have. I remember leaving camp meetings with the group marvelling at Phil. Isn't he amazing? Wish I had his faith. He's just so connected to God. If, If I could have only half of that. And then there's the worship. A person who's worship is so spiritual, so heavenly that they've joined the angels. I mean, worship like that can be intimidating, can't it? As you walk the Christian life, why don't I worship like that? What's missing? Why doesn't my church out worship like that? Maybe that's why I'm not growing much as a Christian. Maybe that's what I need. And then there's their experience, the detail of what God has shown them. I'm just a guy, he said, but wow, the the things that God is showing me, the things that he is telling me and he wants to tell you. It's easy to be intimidated by those who have stories or visions or voices telling them things that only they could know. Now, there's no biblical grounds to say such things can't happen, but the simple fact is most Christians never have such experiences and so it's easy to feel inadequate below par and then there's their superiority they are puffed up says Paul but isn't this what makes such a person intimidating they're just so big larger than life at least in their minds and perhaps ours I mean they'd never say they were superior after all they're delightfully humble but Paul says they're puffed up for no reason it's just hot air And so Paul applies the pin. Such a person, he says, uh, who seems so super spiritual, overly full spiritual, is actually the exact opposite, unspiritual. Because in all their bigness, they have become disconnected from the head. There's not room for two big heads and so they've disconnected themselves from the biggest head of all, Christ. 
And so rather than their Christian life being in the fast lane, they are described here by Paul as idle. Now again, the answer to such intimidation is not just to root out all super spirituality and leave some sort of vacuum. All too quickly that will be filled by some other badge of superiority like I'm an evangelical or whatever it may be. And so Paul's point is this. Don't be intimidated by a person who leaves you feeling disqualified. Don't be intimidated by a person who leaves you more excited about them or yourself than your Christ. What we need is brothers and sisters around us who will leave us thrilled by Jesus and not by them. And one final one, verse 20 onwards, don't be dictated to by rules. In verse 20, Paul again reminds us in case we've lost sight of our identity, of what our identity is. You died with Christ, he says, and you were made alive in him. You've been set free from the dictatorship of worldly rules. You're in a whole new kingdom now, Christ's kingdom. Why would you let the rules of this world dictate how you walk? The rules of this world that consist in the sort of stuff that perishes, that can't possibly do for you what Christ's death and resurrection has done. Rules that appear impressive, have an appearance of wisdom and don't rules feel like that? Rules are sensible, aren't they? Rules help us. Rules can shape our lives, tell us the boundaries. We love rules. But rules can't change hearts. Rules can't curb flesh. Only Christ and you in him crucified has the power to do that. Now let me say with each of these areas of intimidation, I reckon there's all sorts of examples where we can be intimidated in this way and not the least here in this third one with rules. I think this is our biggest struggle. But let me mention just one. It's the area of sexual temptation in a relationship because I think it's where Paul goes at the end in verse 23. I mean, it's the perennial question, isn't it, among especially youth and students and young adults but perhaps others as you begin a relationship. Say you're a guy and you begin a relationship with a girl and you go to a Uh, what you think is a wise or older Christian and you say, how far can I go physically in this relationship? Tell me the boundaries. How far can I go? Which usually means one of two things. Either I'm pretty sure I've gone too far and I just want to check or I want to know what I can get away with. We want a rule. But all the rule does is legitimise us even if we're not. We set some sort of arbitrary standard, arbitrary rule and we, we sort of tick a box. Anybody who keeps to that rule is a good Christian. But that's a worldly principle. You're in Christ now and your sexual behaviour is not a matter of rules but of your relationship with Christ in whom you died and have been made alive. Rather than ask how far can I go, perhaps instead ask do I love Christ in whom I died and was raised again more than my sexual gratification. Is he my hope? And rather than ask how far can I go with my girlfriend, maybe ask do I love my girlfriend? She who died and rose with him, she who has a brand new identity in him, do I honour that identity enough that I will take it seriously that she is now without blemish and free from accusation, that I will do nothing to harm that? Don't pursue rules. Pursue your relationship with Christ. Be 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness and watch how he changes your sexual behaviour. Now just as we close, let me encourage you to do this as you're walking in him and as you're fixing your eyes and your identity in him. Whenever intimidation comes, whenever you feel that danger, let me suggest four words to you. They are words that many Australian sportsmen has announced on a sporting field when far ahead in a competition. Look at the scoreboard. Zechariah chapter 3, one of my favourite passages in all all the scriptures. There you have Joshua the high priest standing before God in filthy rags. And just next to him is Satan delighting in the fact that he can accuse him. Look at him, he's pathetic. You don't belong here, Joshua. God's response, he rips off his rags and he gives him new rich garments. That's what Christ has done to you. Paul writes this letter to encourage you, you who have received Christ, to keep walking in him. He does so because he knows there's a danger of being intimidated along the way. And he knows behind all of these ploys and whatever guys they come, there is an accuser, Satan, who delights to accuse you as you walk. Well, let me say, when Satan tempts you to despair as we have sung and tells you of the guilt within, turn to your accuser and take him to Colossians 2 verse 14. The verse where we are told that Christ has cancelled our written code or more literally cancelled our record of debt, a a reference to the the little slate that they would put above the cross, the, the slate that said the charge that the criminal was guilty of. And say to him, my charge slate, which no doubt for each of us would be massive, wouldn't it? They'd have to find a pretty big piece of slate. Every charge was nailed to his cross. Debt paid in full. And so, Satan, take your trumped-up charges and your kangaroo court and leave. For the slate above my head was wiped clean and now has just two words on it, in Christ. And then turn to the one who would disqualify you as you walk and say to him, Satan, verse 15, look at the scoreboard. He wins, you lose and I'm in him. So whenever you feel intimidated or perhaps confident because of the shadows of religion or the hot air of experience or the futility of rules, take off such useless defences and instead put on Christ. Hide in Christ. That's where your life is now. So walk in him. Let's pray together.